having too much weight is linked to poorer health. But just how much weight is too much? Body fat can be measured in several different ways, with each method having its own pros and cons. Body mass index, or BMI, is by far the most common one used, as it only relies on knowing your height and weight. But with that simplicity comes flaws, as those easy results can sometimes be misleading, which is why the widespread use of BMI is troubling. In today's podcast, I'll look at the different ways that body fat assessment can be made and explain why you should take any BMI label it may give you with a grain of salt. Welcome to the Thinking Nutrition Podcast. My name is Tim Crow, and I'm a career researcher, educator, and science communicator with most of this spent in the field of nutrition. How do you make sense of so much conflicting information in the field of nutrition? Well, I don't profess to have all the answers in an area that is continually changing as research changes, you can count on what is covered in this podcast to be based on the whole field of nutrition science, not just selective areas that support a particular way of thinking. And this podcast will always be free from any commercial product tie-ins, endorsements or advertisements. Just credible nutrition science presented in plain and simple language and then translating this in what it means for your health. So on with today's show. The most common measure of body fat and associated health risks is body mass index or BMI. BMI was developed as a simple way to compare different groups of people based on the correlation between height and weight as an indicator of excess body fat. BMI is calculated by dividing weight in kilograms by the square of height in meters. So see the show notes for a link to an online BMI calculator if you want to know what your BMI is. Now a healthy BMI for an adult is between 18.5 and 25 kilograms per square meter. So between 25 and 30 is considered overweight and 30 and above is considered obese. But at a population level, high rates of body fat above 30 indicate an increased risk of earlier death and a greater risk of diseases such as heart disease, some cancers and diabetes. But labeling a person as obese based upon the BMI, may not always be helpful in affecting positive behavior changes, especially when a person already acknowledges that they're carrying a bit of extra weight. Unhealthy BMI, above the healthy weight range, and excess weight can all carry the same message about the need to shed excess weight for better health and reduce risk of disease without a BMI label. BMI, though, is the main measure used for international obesity guidelines, and it is recommended by the World Health Organization. But BMI is not perfect. People with the same body weight and height can have different proportions of body fat to lean muscle mass. BMI does not take into account the person's body fat versus muscle, and since muscle weighs more than fat because it is denser, Athletes with high muscle mass, for instance, can have a lower proportion of body fat than less muscular people. So a BMI calculation for an athlete can actually put them into an overweight or obese category, 
even though their risk of obesity-related diseases is very low, and they have a fairly low body fat to start with, compared to somebody who is not an athlete but has a similar BMI. So this is a frequently cited criticism of BMI, but it needs to be put into perspective. Such people are in the minority, and a quick visual inspection will clearly show whether it's muscle or fat that such people are carrying the most of. Striking differences, though, in body composition are also apparent among people of various ethnic and racial groups, making standard BMI guidelines inappropriate for some populations. For example, people of Polynesian ancestry tend to have a greater bone density and greater amounts of lean muscle mass compared to people from a Caucasian background. So using BMI as the standard may overestimate the prevalence of obesity among people from a Polynesian population. So a higher BMI healthy weight range is often recommended. People from an Asian background tend to have more body fat on a leaner frame, so a lower BMI healthy weight range can be used. So with so many flaws to BMI, why does it continue to be used? The answer is simple. It is easy to measure, and what gets measured gets counted. BMI tends to be used in large-scale population research and surveys as it can be calculated from height and weight, either self-reported or taken quickly and non-invasively by a researcher. Now, if the BMI of a population goes up over time, then it is safe to attribute that that increase in BMI is from excess weight gain from fat, not because people got shorter, or suddenly because large proportions of people started smashing out a bodybuilding program. If anything, though, BMI tends to underreport people with excess body fat. In fact, one meta-analysis on the subject found that BMI fails to classify half of the people with excess body fat, reporting them as normal or overweight, despite having a body fat percentage classifying them as obese. And I'll link to this study in the show notes. So while BMI is a useful measure of overall health risks, it fails to take into account the distribution of fat throughout the body. I often say that when it comes to linking weight to health, it is more important where the fat is than how fat you are. For this reason, waist circumference was developed as a simpler and potentially more accurate measure of longer-term disease risk. Weight circumference is not only a gauge of body fat, but it specifically targets the most dangerous type of fat, visceral fat. So there are two important types of fat in our stomach. There is subcutaneous and visceral fat. Subcutaneous fat is the fat that lies directly under the skin, which you can generally you know, palpate or feel while visceral fat lies deep within the abdomen, surrounding the body's organs. Visceral fat is found between the organs of the abdomen and contributes to belly fat. And there's a strong correlation between central adiposity and cardiovascular disease, insulin resistance, type 2 diabetes, inflammatory diseases, high blood pressure, and other obesity-related diseases. For men, the aim is to have a waist circumference below 94 centimeters. For women, it's 80 centimeters. Measures above 102 centimeters for men and 88 centimeters for women carry a higher risk of developing type 2 diabetes, 
high blood pressure, heart disease, and even some forms of cancer. But for people of an Asian background, slightly lower waist circumference goals apply, in which case it's under 90 centimeters for men and 80 centimeters for women. More recently, though, estimates of body fat percentage and health risks have looked at waist to hip ratio and even waist to height ratio. Both these measures take into account central fat stores so you can give a better health risk estimate than BMI can. And for men, a waist to hip ratio below 0.9 and for women below 0.8 corresponds to a healthy weight BMI. Now, an advantage of using waist measures for body fat estimates is that it takes away the stigma of needing to step on the scales. It also allows for the use of cutoff values that avoid terms of overweight and obesity, and instead focus on the risk of metabolic disease using an objective measure that involves just simply a tape measure. Another technique used to measure body fat is bioelectrical impedance. This method involves passing a small electric current through the body, normally by a specialized set of scales that a person stands on. The scales measure water volume and, by the use of special algorithms, arrives at a body fat percentage estimate. The accuracy of such machines, though, can vary dramatically, especially around the cheaper end of the price range. By far the most accurate way to measure body fat is by magnetic resonance imaging, or MRI, or other techniques such as CT scanning or X-ray scanning. But such methods are not realistic for the public to use and belong firmly in the world of medical research. So, as long as the limitations of a weight assessment method are understood, methods such as BMI and waist circumference are quick and simple validated ways to assess weight and disease risk that can be used by health professionals and the public alike. But BMI only gives a very approximate guide to health related to weight and height and gives no information on body fat content or location. BMI ranges can also vary depending on ethnicity. And it's also now acknowledged that as we enter into older age, a higher BMI is linked to improved nutritional status, protection against falls, and lower disease risk. So a slightly higher BMI with older age can actually be beneficial. So BMI is much better for looking at the health of whole populations and how this changes over time, rather than as a diagnostic tool for an individual. Simple measurements such as waist circumference are more useful for an individual as they look directly at body fat around the abdomen, which is more directly related to the risk of disease. BMI is not a measure of health or a physiological state, like when you measure your resting blood pressure or fasting blood glucose, which are both certainly related to the presence or absence of disease. BMI is simply a measure of your size. Plenty of people have a high or low BMI and are healthy. And conversely, lots of people with a normal BMI are unhealthy. In fact, a person with a normal BMI who smokes and has a strong family history of heart disease may have a higher risk of earlier heart disease death than someone who has a high BMI but is physically fit and a non-smoker. So treat BMI as just a number which should never be given too much importance as a primary goal for maintaining good health. So that's it for today's show. 
You can find the show notes either in the app you're listening to this podcast on if it supports it, or else head over to my webpage at thinkingnutrition.com.au and click on the podcast section to find this episode to read the show notes. If you find this podcast of value, then please consider sharing it with your friends and colleagues, or maybe even leave a review. This all helps increase the ranking and reach of the podcast, which means a big win for credible evidence-based nutrition messages while helping to dilute out the crazy and making the world a slightly less confusing place. I'm Tim Crow, and you've been listening to Thinking Nutrition. Nutrition.